Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Have you heard of the terms oxidation, inflammation, free radicals, antioxidants? Do you ever want to know what those terms mean and how they relate to the way our body ages? Well, I certainly do. And today we are joined with an excellent group of guests. We have Dr. Bradley Wilcox. He is a geriatric specialist, works as a long-term care hospitalist at Queens Medical Center, but also is the New York Times bestselling author of the Okinawa Program. He's also participating in the Honolulu Heart Study run out of Kuakini Hospital and the University of Hawaii. So he is an expert in wanting to live to be 100. And as he has just told me, He's planning on doing just that. And in order to do that, he's going to talk about some of the things he's doing in his life to try and help that to be a possibility. But we are also joined by biotech scientist and entrepreneur David Wadamol. He's also been working with Dr. Wilcox on developing different types of supplements and things people can use to help keep their body healthy keep them living long, and also keep them from having serious problems that can cause a lot of pain and discomfort. I I don't know if I want to live to be 100. These guys are going to convince me why I should. Now, as always, our conversation is part of your conversation, and you can join us at any time, 941-3689, toll-free, 877-941-3689. First, gentlemen, I want to define some basic terms. Let's talk about oxidation. It sounds like I'm getting more oxygen, David. Why don't I want more oxygen? Oxidation sounds like a good thing, but why is that sort of seeming like rust? Well, oxidation really is a form of rust. Uh, When you see that, you see that uh, the oxygen molecules are no longer the type of uh, normal oxygen. They either have an extra or one too few electrons, and they're actually damaging to the body. And so what we want to do, if we can, is to decrease the amount of oxidative stress is another way of putting it. And if we can do that, we can reduce inflammation and uh, impart better health. So what causes oxidative stress? Oh, there's many multiple causes of it. It can be pollution. It could be uh, viruses. It could be bacteria, the aging process itself. So there are really many different causes of it. But at the end of the day, the oxidative uh, stress that occurs is actually now well understood scientifically as to what actually happens at the molecular level. And, well... You understand it scientifically about what happens at the molecular level. But if this is something that we don't want to happen, and yet it often does happen as a course of daily living, there's pollution in the environment, there's different exposure to bacteria, viruses, etc. Is it a bad thing? In general, you want to minimize the oxidative stress that your body is going through. And exercise and diet play a role in that. But understanding what's happening at the molecular level allows us now to think about intervening in very positive ways to affect our overall general health. So where does the term free radicals come into play? Well, free radical is another term for the specific molecules involved in oxidative stress. So the oxygen molecules or nitrogen molecules that um, have too many or too few electrons are called free radicals. And so that's a result of oxidative stress? Yes. So I don't want oxidative stress. Correct. And I don't want free radicals. Exactly. But I do want antioxidation. Correct. That is the term to uh, mitigate or decrease or hopefully even eliminate the oxidative stress that is occurring. And how would I get antioxidants? Where can I get those from? Well, 
antioxidants uh, are present in nature and in our diet and vegetables. So even in our own body, we make uh, antioxidants. But those endogenous antioxidant systems can get overwhelmed uh, by the other causes that that we just uh, spoke about. And then you you can helpfully interfere or add to the body's capability uh, of their endogenous systems with uh, supplements or better diet, for example. So I might have a bit of antioxidants in my system, but if I need more than that because of whatever I'm exposed to or lifestyle or who knows what, then I can get more of that through nature, through dietary things, maybe through supplements, through some other sort of a way that I can bring in those antioxidants into my body. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Dr. Wilcox, tell me, is is, is oxidation and inflammation, is that why, you know, People look old as they get old. Is that why I'm getting gray hair? What's 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 causing the wrinkles? What's going on here? Well, first of all, I really don't see any wrinkles. You on are you. far away. It's a dark room. <laughs> Trust me, they're there. Uh, nor do I see a gray hair. But yep. he needs glasses. We're just going to say that. But it is a as uh, uh, Dave said, it is a major driver of of aging and aging related diseases. The diseases that most of us die from: heart disease, stroke, cancer dementia. We do hear about a lot of that in reference to inflammation. We hear about a lot of that in reference to, you know, whether it be heart disease, inflammation of the arteries, issues that are going on that are promoting the breakup of those plaques that are causing blood clots. So we hear about these terms a lot. So it seems to me like if we were to accept aging as a normal process, is this a normal process or is there some way that we can mitigate it? And if we can mitigate it, why would we want to do so? Is that so we can live to be 100? Well, I think the the main issue with aging is that it's almost a universal process. Almost everything ages. Uh, as Dave or Dr. Watermole was saying, uh, cars even age. You look at uh, cars and they, they rust through oxidative stress. Um, and so you can tell an old car from a young car. Um, and the same thing happens to human bodies. And we age in multiple ways. But the main risk factor for the diseases that we suffer from when we get older cancer, coronary heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, the main risk factor is age itself. So if, we get, if there's something that comes along with aging where our systems start to break down through basic uh, biomolecular processes, and we age at different rates, and there's a way to, to slow down or speed up that aging, partly based on your genetics, partly based on your lifestyle. So you've done some studies of people who are centurions, people who have lived to be 100 and beyond. And there's the highest population of people that are of that age group in Okinawa. What are they doing differently? And do can I just eat a bunch of sweet potatoes and, and be great? Well, that would be a good start. Uh, All right. They're purple. You, it's a pretty color. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go get some. You can pretty much pick them up anywhere in Hawaii. You, you can, and they're actually quite good. So what do the Okinawans do? Is it a genetic issue? Is it something else in their diet? Is it probably a multifactorial combination of all of it? Well, I like the latter. Yes, it's almost all of these uh, diseases that we get have multiple factors, the main drivers being uh, our genetics and our our we say non-genetic factors or our environment. And that environment could be your dietary environment, exercise. Do you live in a super polluted city? Are you drinking uh, polluted water? Um, are you in, under a high-stress environment? So all those factors together really add up. 
And uh, we see people in our studies with, uh, we've got one of the best long-term studies in the world of aging men, the Kuakini Honolulu Heart Program. So we enrolled in 1965 over 8,000 men of Okinawan and Japanese ancestry. And we followed them with periodic exams. Uh, they've had, the whole cohort has had 13 full exams so far. And they were middle-aged when they enrolled uh, 51 years ago. So there's still a few of them alive. And the youngest is about 96. The oldest is somewhere around 106. That number kind of changes quite frequently. Sure, sure. And some of them have lived amazingly long. Over 2,000 of them have lived uh, into the late 80s, 90s, and some into their hundreds. And some of them died fairly early. And we see some differences in their genetics. And we see differences in their lifestyles. And we've seen that uh, if you can avoid major common risk factors that we all, you know, every time you see a patient in your office and you say, get that cholesterol under control, get your blood sugar under control, get your blood pressure under control, once you add them all up, it's, they don't sort of cancel each other out. They're additive. And we found that if you can avoid the major ones, at least six or seven of the major risk factors, you can really markedly four or five times enhance your, your odds for, for living into your 80s or 90s healthfully. So just because I'm not genetically Okinawan doesn't mean that's it for me. Correct. Although it wouldn't hurt to be Okinawan. <laughs> Well, it's a little late. I don't think I could change the genetics at this point. But it certainly seems like if you were to look at some of the other things that people are doing that are associated with living a long time, and I'll, I'll often ask patients, I've got quite a, quite a few that are, you know, very healthily living into their 80s and 90s and beyond. And I'll ask them, you know, what's your secret? And a lot of times they say, hey, everybody in my family has lived a long time. Or maybe they're the only one who has. And their usual answer is something like everything in moderation. I don't do too much of this or that. I don't drink too much. I never really have. I don't eat too much. I exercise a little bit every day. I enjoy spending time with friends. It seems like the real key is not necessarily a whole bunch of new stuff, but people going back to the basics, eating vegetables, eating eating fruits, eating non-processed foods, just living a life that is sort of several steps away from the super stress, you know, phone, email, text message, all these sorts of ways that we, we right now manage our lives. It makes me wonder, are we promoting early aging in our younger generations? I think that's one way of looking at it. I mean, if you look probably at, a depressing way. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at uh, we, I've studied the Okinawans for uh, close to twenty three years now, and when I first went to Okinawa to join the Okinawa Centenarian Study, which was started by Dr. Mak Makoto Suzuki at of University of Ryukyu's at that time, um, and was joined by my twin brother. Dr. Craig Wilcox, we observed some really interesting things. And just coming off the very first airplane that we landed and, and just looking around and seeing some really kind of robust-looking older people and you know, someone sweeping the street, for example, or someone at one of the, uh, the local uh, markets, you look at them, oh, that looks like a healthy 80-year-old. And then you talk to them and you find out they're in their mid-90s or early hunt, you know, hundreds. One and of them was 103. Wow, and they're, and they're sweeping. still working. They're physically active. Right. They're doing things. Right. And so the first one I actually met, I, I said, I asked my brother who speaks pretty good Japanese uh, uh, to ask this elderly lady what she ate when she was younger. And she said, uh, she kind of scratched her head and not thought about it. And then she said, emo, you know, which uh, for those that speak Japanese means sweet potato, basically. 
And so I said, oh, Craig, Craig, ask her. Ask her again. What else did she? She kind of looked around, scratched her head, and then she just said, Emo Bacari. You know, I ate nothing but sweet potatoes, which basically to her when she, you're growing up as a kid and, and you have sweet potatoes for breakfast, sweet potatoes for lunch, sweet potatoes for dinner, and then other food as well. It was like our bread. You know, we have sliced bread, you know, for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, you know, a bread for dinner. It was their bread. So it was their major carbohydrate. And those uh, sweet potatoes, Okinawan and other sweet potatoes that they ate, are full of uh, not only are they low in glycemic index, um, but they're packed full of all kinds of nutrients that we're basically missing from our diet. And they also have uh, chemically active compounds, phytocompounds, if you will, that activate uh, what we'll call longevity genes or longevity pathways. We all have lots of different genes, and some genes in particular networks, they talk to each other. It's like a pathway. You know, they knock, knock on each other's doors, and they, you know, if something's wrong in your body, they'll call all their friends in and say, well, we've got to do something about it. And so we've, we're looking at these major impact genes we'll call like nodal genes, a node in a big network that talks to the other genes and tells them what to do. And so we've found one of them. Uh, it's called FOXO3, um, and it's a gene that uh, if you can, uh, you have a certain version of the gene, you have double, or if you have two copies of that longevity version, you have triple the odds of living to be 100. So that's a real major gene that's important. So how do you know if you have it? You've got to get genotyped. <laughs> so there are ways that you could find out. <laughs> yes, yes. More than just doing some of the commercially available some genetic of, testing. Well, some of the commercially available platforms do have uh, that gene on their platform. Um, but um, for the most part, it's an, an experimental test right now. Sure, we do it for research purposes. Right. We're taking a look at it saying, hey, here's the likelihood. Here are the people over 100. They happen to have this gene. So then we can sort of prospectively say, if you do, you might have a greater likelihood. But it's certainly not going to protect you if you eat something uh, untoward on a regular basis that is not as healthy as sweet potatoes. Right. But it's it's amazing how powerful some of these genes can be. If you have the longevity, we'll call it the longevity version of the gene, which Let's see how many people in the room. One, two, three, four. One of us or two of us has the longevity version in this room. And if you I'm going to count me out. I'm just going <laughs> to count me out now. If you have the longevity version, uh, having that version is equivalent to being able to smoke uh, a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years. You're at the same risk. If you have but, like, I'm not excited about smoking. <laughs> if it would be, you know, having you that gene <laughs> means that you could, like, eat chocolate for breakfast, oh. lunch, and dinner, I'd be like, oh, bring it on. I'm going to go test for the gene. But, oh, you could smoke. Well, uh, no, thanks. You know, so I see your point, though, that there are some ways that we may underestimate the value of genetics as far as how that can really help to help you or in some cases hurt you when you look at different factors uh, as far as longevity is concerned. And also, I think other potential medical conditions as well. We do see certain populations that are much more likely to have issues with diabetes or kidney problems or blood pressure. And some of that's diet and some of that's genetics. And we know that sometimes, again, it's that multifactorial combination of all of that. So that looking at that in, in totality, having that genetic component can help you. Having these other components go along with it can also help. And if you have the genetic component, maybe you can get away with a couple of other not-so-healthy behaviors otherwise. That's exactly it. I mean, I, I, I deal with uh, other researchers in, in aging, and they're, they're all focused purely on genetics. 
And they say, oh, my patient, all my 100-year-old patients, they smoked a pack of cigarettes a day all their lives, drank whiskey for breakfast, and and they didn't, they ate whatever they wanted. And, and then I'll show them the numbers that we have. And I'll say, well, look, here are the people in our Kukini Honolulu Heart Program that live to be 100. And uh, maybe uh, 25% of them smoke when they're younger. But the number of pack years, the amount that they smoked was in, you know, much, much smaller than, and they had a, uh, you know, statistics to p-value of about 15 zeros, which means it's a very, very, very strong, significant, sure. significant finding that they smoked much less than he, than what he brought from this was, oh, but they smoked. So, right. I mean, I think you also have to look at it. Balance. Sure. You know, and, and some people do have that wonderful ability, but not everybody. And I guess you'd have to say to yourself, do you want to count on having that ability right. and have your life be at risk if you don't? Right. And that's the point I was making earlier about uh, and that you uh, also made about balance. And when you look at the Okinawans, they had the right balance. They had a healthy diet. They were physically active, uh, good social support networks um, as the uh, as the population aged, uh, they got re- really good public health in the 1950s and 60s. So that this generally healthy lifestyle that they had, where they you know had all kinds of habits like harahachibu, only eat till you're 80 percent full, so they're not overeating. They had uh, the vast majority of their diet was vegetable products, and they had fish and some meat in moderation, and uh, seaweed and other lots of uh, healthy sea vegetables, and uh, drank lots of green type tea, you know, sampincha or uh, jasmine tea. And, and and that sort of combination really helped. Uh, we So far, we haven't found any profound genetic advantages. But interestingly, in the population that we have here of uh, Okinawan uh, Americans and other Japanese Americans, the if you look at mi- the middle-aged uh, men in our heart program, they have higher uh, risk factors for mortalities, such as they gen- generally are heavier, their blood pressure might be a little bit higher. But when you look at them on a biochemical level, much healthier, lower blood sugar levels, lower insulin levels. You know, the things that scientists are looking at to, to, to really look what drives these risk factors for aging and, and aging-related diseases, they're, they're better. So there might be something also going on. The mystery factor. Yeah. We don't know what it is yet. We've got to discover it. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio having a very enlightening conversation with Dr. Bradley Wilcox. He is a gerontologist expert in aging and is part of the UH Kuikini Honolulu Heart Study and, and wrote a book, The Okinawan Way, which, again, is, is something that makes me want to just go get a purple sweet potato and just eat it right now. And David Watermull, biotech scientist and entrepreneur. And we're talking today about different ways to help live longer, but be healthy while we do it. Now we're talking today about different types of ways that we can improve our diet, maybe find some supplements to help us. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some unique things that uh, you might not have heard of before, or maybe you did, and ways that we can all incorporate that into our daily habits so that we too can live to be a long, healthy, long, productive life. But I have to say, I don't want to be working at 103. We will be right back after this quick break. See, it will be right here. Don't Don't leave us. 
Aloha. This is Jeremy Hobson, co-host of Here and Now, NPR's midday news magazine show. And we are thrilled to be joining the Hawaii Public Radio lineup starting February 14th. We all know that news doesn't just happen during drive time. And on Here and Now, we're all about keeping it fresh and keeping you updated with in-depth news and important conversations. Listen for us on HPR One every weekday morning at 10, starting February 14th. It's like boarding a moving train, joining the touring cast of Hamilton, the country's hottest stage show. We'll talk with a young local performer who has done just that. Senator Carl Rhodes looks at Keiki Caucus priorities. The Coalition for a Tobacco-Free Hawaii weighs in on a proposed cigar tax. And award-winning author Barry Lopez comes to our studio. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. Today we're having a really interesting discussion on a topic that I always love to learn about. How can you live longer, and how do things like antioxidants and inflammation play a role in some of the major disease processes that we know are affecting longevity. We know that every year there are different number one and number two causes of mortality. And I think this past year, cancer might have surpassed atherosclerotic vascular disease or vice versa. It's always one or two. And that atherosclerosis reflects things like strokes and heart attacks. So when we think about how we can live longer, we have to think about how we can be healthier. And that all starts now, no matter what age you are, but is something that, you know, incorporating a healthier lifestyle can help anyone along the way. So today in the studio, we have Dr. Bradley Wilcox. He is a gerontologist, longevity expert, takes care of people, watches them and helps them get better as they're doing rehabilitation and other types of activities after having an illness. And we also have David Watermole, a biotech scientist and entrepreneur. And we're talking today about how we can incorporate simple things in our daily lives to live longer and be healthier. Because again, I don't think any of us want to live longer and not be able to know who we are or not be able to take care of ourselves. I think a lot of times I see folks and that would be sort of their worst case scenario. So we're talking about how you can live long, but also be healthy while you're at it. Now, as always, you can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689, uh, David, let's let's talk about what are some of the ways that we can reduce oxidative stress. We've talked with Dr. Brad. He's talked a little bit about different elements of the diet. I think when we look at, you know, I look at the, the Ornish program. That's a combination of stress management, exercise, nutrition, group support. If you were to look at what the Okinawan families have done over these years, they've had social support. They've had ways to lower stress. They've had nutrition. They've had exercise, all of those components to what we now know reverses heart disease from Dean Ornish's studies actually are incorporated in some people's lifestyle from just geographically where they live or how they live their lives. What are some other ways that we can reduce oxidative stress? Should I just like give up my day job and just stay home and go watch sunsets? Is that going to help me? Probably not in the long run, but what are some simple things that anyone could do to reduce oxidative stress in their body? Maybe some things they could, lifestyle things they could do, or 
even other sorts of ways they can do it. Supplements I can take. Is there an antioxidant in, in a bottle? I want some. <laughs> Indeed, uh, there are uh, antioxidants in, in, in bottles. And uh, reducing oxidative stress and inflammation does indeed, I think, now been well-established to have an impact on the chronic diseases of aging. And so if we can do that on a regular basis, we can have that sort of impact. All the things about reduction of stress and the proper diet and group support are all part of the equation. Uh, but probably one of the strongest things that anybody can do would be to increase the right kind of antioxidants uh, through uh, the right kind of supplementation. And the molecule that uh, we and others have seen uh, to have one of the most powerful impacts uh, in this area is something called astaxanthin. I want some. It's, uh, it's the molecule that makes salmon pink and, and lobster red, and you can eat salmon, but can pro- it's very hard to eat enough salmon to really have to get your optimal benefit. And so there are dietary supplements uh, that um, uh, people have brought out, in, including my company, Cardax, uh, a product called Xanthacin that is uh, astaxanthin. Uh, and uh, with data we've published, in fact, it's 1,400 peer-reviewed papers on astaxanthin, 52 human clinical trials. So good scientific support around the antioxidant benefit that this uh, compound can actually d- deliver safely. So I want some, because if I were to go ahead and say I want to reduce my oxidative stress, if I were to say, okay, I'm going to take all these supplements, right, that's not necessarily going to change the fact that if I don't work on the lifestyle, the diet, et cetera, the exercise, it's, it's not like I'm going to get like youth in a bottle. This is really in combination with other presumably healthy activities that you should do. My thought on it is always... You know, you can take whatever supplement you want, but if you're downing it with some alcohol or you're you're taking it with your chocolate milkshake for breakfast, it is probably not going to negate the fact that you just had a chocolate milkshake for breakfast, probably not the healthiest kind of thing to do. So what else has to be done in combination? I mean, supplements are great and we'll talk about we'll talk about that in a moment, but is it just a supplement in some of those human trials? Why wasn't I invited? But in some of those trials, was it other things that people had to do in addition to see a benefit? Or could they really just take this and well, it, be antioxidants? Yeah, in the trials themselves, uh, whether it's animals or human studies, they typically try and isolate one variable, in this case, the supplement that was given. Okay. And so you looked at the ability to reduce the endpoint, which in this case was oxidative stress as measured by something, typically a blood test of some kind where you looked at oxidative stress or inflammatory markers uh, that that we know play a role in these chronic diseases. Like, for example, are we talking about CRP, sedimentation rate? Yep. Those yep. sort of inflammatory markers. Yes, uh, CRP is one of the uh, one of the newer ones that's finally being used somewhat in general practice. But there's some other uh, ones like TNF alpha, which the three uh, largest selling drugs in the world target because uh, for rheumatoid arthritis, they target them because. It's an important actor. It's an anti-inflammatory, sure. Yeah, and so if you can if you sure. can bring down TNF alpha, uh, then you have a positive benefit uh, as well, just kind of by itself. But we're not saying that gives you the freedom to just go ahead and do you know go uh, wild, party go, on, go wild and party on, right? Exactly. Not going to happen. No, okay. no, no, that's not the ideal. Well, that's that, not that generally my lifestyle. So I yeah, think yeah. I'm safe. But, but, okay. at the, but at the same time, it is important from a scientific perspective to be able to isolate that you do have an impact by itself. Uh, on uh, on these on the oxidative stress and inflammation 
that causes chronic disease. So we're using those anti-inflammatory or actually these inflammatory markers as a surrogate for what could happen in chronic disease later on. Yes. So we're saying, okay, if you have this high level of inflammation in your body, we know that that level of inflammation is often associated with a progression of, you know, whether it be blockages in your arteries, atherosclerotic vascular disease, whatever you want to call it. So we know that if there's a progression and we lower these particular inflammatory markers, we see, do we actually, are there studies to show that these other diseases don't progress? In animals, yes. Okay. We, we, we do see that uh, in multiple, literally hundreds of different animal studies. The human studies have focused more so far on the markers themselves mm-hmm. because looking at disease outcomes takes many years. Sure, decades. Decades. I mean, you know, the Honolulu Heart Study, we're still yes. studying it, and that's yes. been around for like 50 or 60 years. So, you know, a lot of data that we have to get. Okay. Yes, but it's kind of like, like we know, for example, that... Uh, LDL, perhaps uh, those levels can have an impact on atherosclerosis. So they're a marker for it. And now we just test for LDL. And we, and, and we manage a patient in, in, with, with that level in mind. And I think sometimes we just do some basic testing. And there's a lot more testing that could be done. But since it's still considered experimental or investigational or for research purposes, we may not have that available to the general public. That's, it's not available today. Yet. But yet. But that, that is one of the things that I think will, will be coming are these inflammatory panels, kind of like we do a lipid panel today. Uh, an inflammatory panel, I think, is coming. Well, and it's interesting because I remember years ago, you know, if you were to look at what we used to do for testing cholesterol 30, 40 years ago, we did a total cholesterol, and that was it. And so as time has gone on, now they do a breakdown. So they do your good cholesterol, your bad cholesterol, your triglycerides. And as time has gone on, now they do lipoprotein A, and they do different levels of, you know, very low-density lipoprotein, VLDL, LDL, et cetera. So we're moving towards looking at more diagnostic tools. At the same time as we're trying to determine what is the best way to manage these results, because if you're going to manage it all the same – why would we go ahead and do this differentiation? There's got to be something else that it tells us. So as time has gone on, we really have seen some progression in what we've learned using different laboratory studies as ways to define disease, but also further manage it and be more specific. So definitely, I think there's a lot to be said for some of the studies that, or some of the laboratory analysis that we don't do yet, that we will do soon. Absolutely. Because uh, CRP, I think, is an important measure of general uh, inflammation. Right. It's a great test. Mm-hmm. If it's high, it says something's going on, Something's, but it doesn't tell you what. And uh, some of these other uh, inflammatory markers uh, are tied with other diseases that can help us. Like I mentioned, TNF-alpha and rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, but there's other ones, COX-1 and COX-2, IL-1 and IL-6, and they tend to be raised in different disease states. Um, and so when you start to measure these in an inflammatory panel, you get a, a, a more useful picture. All right, we've got George on the line from Kona. George, welcome to The Body Show. Uh, thank you. I have a question on one of the supplements that's on the market currently. It's called Elysium Basis. It's nicotinamide, riboside, and terostilbenate. And it purports to increase your NAD plus uh, production within your actual cell structures. Um, and directly affect the mitochondria. Well, you makes two of us. I've got a question about that too, George. I have no idea what you're talking about. But lucky for me, <laughs> well, I have got a, some really good people wet. who I think understand exactly what you're talking about. 
Hold on hey. a sec. I think Dr. Bradley Wilcox understands this. Brad, what's George asking me? He's asking me about something. Nicotinamide? It sounds like nicotine, huh? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's a related, but it's uh, the NAD molecules uh, involved in uh, free radical oxidative stress from the mitochondria. It's right, uh, something very big in, uh, with the mitochondria. And um, there's evidence in model organisms, mainly when I say model organisms, model Models for human aging, like mainly rodents, uh, where if you if you uh, give uh, this compound um, or this group of compounds that they they live longer and that they have less uh, oxidative stress. The challenge with that is that uh, we don't know what the long term effects are in humans. We would as- assume that uh, because the model organism data shows this that it would be uh, positive and healthy and safe and, and okay right that people but we just don't it. have long-term studies to see what modulating you know the free radical pathway across mitochondria is gonna gonna do because I mean free radicals are great for I mean they're a great bogeyman but they also have some role as uh, da- there's Dave, gotta be a reason yeah. around they d- might do something okay. right i mean that's what uh, your your white blood cells use to attack viruses they basically shoot them with a free radical gun and kill them so if we so. got rid of all the free radicals what right. else could happen so yeah. we're not it's it sounds great and it could be a great process but we just don't know long term wise will it deliver what it says it will and could it affect another system down the line and we don't know what that effect would be Right. I'll, I'll just add that the, the role of oxidative stress at the mitochondria level has been now well established to show that, uh, that excessive oxidative stress, not the part that's n- not part of our normal uh, energy production, but when our endogenous systems get overwhelmed, it can set off inflammatory pathways pathologically. And so this balance... This is an interesting concept of East, Eastern medicine and Western, uh, Western medicine around a balance uh, of this. Because oxygen-free radicals and nitrogen-free radicals are formed as a normal part of energy production in the mitochondria. But if they get to be too large or you know, uh, too many of them, then they can set off these inflammatory pathways. And so there's been quite a bit of work on understanding that mitochondrial oxidative stress uh, is plays a very important role in the pathological initiation of inflammatory pathways, and that you do improve, you know, multiple uh, d- disease states and improve aging if if you can if if you can make that uh, if you can bring that level back down to to a, a more balanced level. So, like, if I'm a little stressed and motivated, I can get stuff done. But if I'm so super stressed, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, bad things will happen. So if we look at it compared to stress in life, a little bit could be good, could motivate you, get you excited, you get out of bed in the morning, excited to go tackle a task. But if you just have 10 things and you have deadlines and you miss 10 of them, that's not going to work. It could overwhelm the system. Exactly. Okay. I think that's a really good point because – a you know, little bit could be good. You a need li- it for something. A little bit is good. I mean, exercise, what is that? It's a stress to the body. It's a stress to the muscles. It's a stress to the I don't the think lungs. I've ever done too much of that, though, to be frankly <laughs> honest. But if I ever were to do too much of that, it wouldn't be good. Don't worry. I think we're safe. Okay. Got it. Okay. We've got Mike on the line from Connie Ohe. Mike, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha, Kathleen. Thank you for having me on. Aloha. Thanks okay. for being on. 
Yeah. And uh, so I just had a comment. The uh, oxidative stress theory of aging is by no means a slam dunk. Um, there are animal models in which exposure to free radicals appears to actually rev up the cellular repair mechanism instead of uh, causing the organism to live shorter life, actually causing the organism to live a longer life. And then there's the famous study, of course, that uh, antioxidant supplement smokers may have a counterintuitive uh, effect of actually increasing cancer risk instead of decreasing it. Now, the uh, hypothesis being that antioxidants, by scrubbing some free radicals, actually produce more free radicals that need to be scrubbed by something else that's not present. Um, of course, it may well be that the, that the oxidative stress theory of aging is just a red herring right now. There is no very good clinical evidence that it actually helps humans take antioxidant supplements. Well, Mike, you've dashed my hopes. You know, I was hoping I could get exercise in a bottle. I was hoping I could just have milkshakes for breakfast. Apparently, that is not a good plan, and I don't have yeah, milkshakes for breakfast. Yeah. Not a good idea. Yeah, I wish I could uh, take a pill instead of exercising, too. I know it. You know, it just doesn't work for me. I know. you got to do exercise. I know. I never am in, in, at risk of doing too much, trust me. But doing just enough, I think, is a good thing. And there's plenty of studies to show that you got to do something because doing nothing isn't good for you. Now, I'm curious, uh, David, you know, there's question about the oxidative stress theory of aging. And part of what strikes me is that it's, again, we talked about this term and it's it's annoying, but I think it's really true, multifactorial. I suspect that we are at the cusp of learning more about what's going on in the process of aging. And there's probably 10 different things that are happening. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts on some of the potentially paradoxical effects. You know, years ago, they did a study of how great vitamin C and vitamin E are together. And then they did a study, they said, oops, that's not good. It, it actually could cause serious problems. So sometimes with their best of intentions, we get this paradoxic effect. What are your thoughts on Mike's, Mike's question about the, the idea of oxidative stress as a theory on aging? Well, I think it's a very interesting question. But uh, I think it's very important also to keep in mind that all antioxidants are not the same. And, Interesting. And, okay. And they work in different places, hmm. and they have very different antioxidant activity, and they are antioxidants in different ways. There are aqueous uh, antioxidants like vitamin C. Like water-soluble. Water-soluble. Okay. Water-soluble ones. There are other ones that get into cellular membranes. So fat-soluble. Fat-soluble. Things okay. like vitamin E does that. Uh, Astaxanthin does that. Beta-carotene uh, does that. But it turns out in, in work that we've published that, for example, beta-carotene, which was the supplement in the Finnish study referred to by George, actually is a membrane disruptor. And we, so we thought we were doing good and we were disrupting membranes? And we were disrupting membranes. So, but astaxanthin and zeaxanthin, for example, and lycophil uh, do not disrupt the membranes. Mm. And so what, what you see is you have a different effect with different antioxidants. It's important to understand the difference. That's part of what's gone on in the research that we and others have, have done is to understand that difference. And, but given, we're not necessarily say that there's proof that oxidative stress itself causes aging, but we do know that the diseases of aging, cardiovascular disease, liver disease, uh, dementia, cancer, uh, kidney disease, et cetera, are driven by inflammation. And that, and that oxidative stress plays a very significant role in the initiation and the maintenance of those chronic diseases. And so 
it, certainly in animals, we have seen you know some some things around aging and 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 some of the, and astaxanthin, for example. But I think it's much m- more well uh, established that they have a, has a role around anti-inflammatory activity, and that inflammation plays a role in these chronic diseases. And that's what we want to try and focus on and impact now. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, wanting an anti-inflammatory. Can't get my exercise in a bottle. I'm learning a lot. I don't know if you guys are making me happy or not. But when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the other issues that go on when we start talking about uh, inflammation and aging and longevity. And we'll hear from a couple more callers. As always, our show is your show. You can join us at 941-3689, toll free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Are you crushing crosswords while everyone else is crushing candy? Is your favorite weekend activity yelling answers at your radio? Well, guess what? Your weekends are about to get a whole lot more fun. Hi, this is Sophia Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, inviting you to join me for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia, played in front of a live audience. And now you on HBR One. Tune in to Ask Me Another every Saturday at noon, starting February 18th. Warren Buffett, billionaire investor, philanthropist, connoisseur of Oreos and Cherry Coke. Oh, and also? He is as competitive as they come and that he doesn't like to lose, but he plays fair. I'm Kai Rizdal, a new HBO documentary, Becoming Warren Buffett, next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking with Dr. Bradley Wilcox of the Honolulu Heart Study, and he's also been working with the Okinawan population, discovering the secret to longevity. David Watermull, biotech scientist and entrepreneur, and we're talking today about some of those terms that I hear about a lot and can't say I completely understand how to stop them, that concept of inflammation and oxidation and all sorts of different things that lead to aging, and I'm going to blame that on gray hair and wrinkles. I'm just saying, maybe there's some of that going on. And, you know, today we're learning a little bit more about how our body handles these sorts of issues and how we can work on trying to establish healthy lifestyles, maybe add some different supplements and things to encourage our body to to age in a way that doesn't cause as much discomfort, distress, pain, all of the above, so that maybe we can all want to live to be 100, and if we do, feel good while we're at it. Now, right before the break, we were talking with Mike from Kaneohe and talking a little bit about other possible theories of aging. And absolutely, Mike, there probably are some, and we're not quite sure exactly how to incorporate all of this into something easy for someone like myself to grasp. But we're working on it. A lot more research that's going into this. We've got Tom on the line from Honaka'a. Tom, welcome to The Body Show. Good afternoon. I have a question. Has any of you people there read the new book, DNA Restart by Sharon Mohalem? Boy, I'm saying no. I'm getting no's. Um, DNA Restart. I can restart my DNA, Tom? Well, it, seemingly she says that cultural effect of DNA is that you have multiple genes for a certain way of eating. For example, if you're milk intolerant or if you're uh, intolerant of anything else, that's maybe a DNA thing, according to her. And she's done studies on it, and your Okinawan people and your people in Italy, you know, other cultures have certain foods they can't hack, and other cultures have foods they can, and it seems to be in the DNA. 
Okay. So what did you learn from the book, Tom? Well, what she's saying, I have tend to go along with it. You have multiple DNA genes for how you digest things. For so, example, if it's uh, uh, carbohydrates or if it's fats, you have a way of handling it. Some people eat more beef than others. Some people can't eat beef. Some people can have milk. Some people can have milk. And it traces back to genetic lineage uh, where they came from milk, for example. If they came from a place where they had cows, they got used to it. If you come from a place that don't have cows, you have trouble with it. Gotcha. So, well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of research that's going on, and there are some some other books that kind of relate to that. I know that uh, E for Your Blood Type came out a few years ago, and that was sort of looking at maybe where you are ethnogeographically from has something to do with how your body handles some of the foods that you eat, and dietary recommendations were made based on that. Um, you know, I think the more we know, the more we don't know. And we realize how much more information is just still not yet discovered. Um, but it's a very good point, Tom. And, and I appreciate you bringing in the thought that maybe there are some ways that people can look at their ancestry as to how they can manage their current life, food, etc. I think, you know, no matter what you do, if you follow a good, healthy diet and your body is responding well to that, you will know because your body will tell you things are going well, and boy, it'll tell you when it's not. And so those are some of the signs we're talking about trying to identify and handle today. We've got another Tom on the line. We've got Tom from Hawaii Kai. Welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Um, I have Parkinson's disease, and I'm wondering if you know of any neuroprotective um, supplements that would really help the uh, Lewy body or the alpha-synuclein, which develop around the the substantia nigra. Great question, Tom. You want to know, if you got Parkinson's, what can you eat? Is there some kind of supplement that you can take that could help you with this chronic, unfortunately, usually progressive neurologic illness? Uh, David, you're like all, all, on the, all on this. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting question to look at the role of inflammation in mental illness. There's a a very strong emerging body of evidence that suggests that inflammation plays a major role in what we previously considered mental illness, whether it was depression, PTSD, bipolar, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, et cetera. So mental meaning it's some effect on the brain, brain, not necessarily psychiatric. Well, but there's a, you know, what does psychiatric mean? Uh, when we think about these the, the, these things, they manifest they manifest themselves in what we call psychiatric, but it very well may be a physical disease related to inflammation. Sure. I think Parkinson's, we've looked at lack of, you know, decreased amount of dopamine production. People take dopamine, try and help mitigate some of their symptoms. So... Are there any particular things that could help? And and I know, Tom, just for your own sake, a couple of months ago we had on a guest who was looking at different dietary supplements that you could eat for different types of neurologic conditions because there may actually be some things that your body is missing, and if you supplement that, it could help you to feel better. So there are some things out there. Well, and what the research shows is that in many cases, especially for these common what we call uh, mental illnesses or, or brain disorders. Brain disorders, okay. Um, uh, uh, of some kind. Um, the particular uh, inflammatory cytokines called IL-1 and IL-6 are of, of particular interest. And so when we want to look at something that can impact IL-1 and IL-6, among other things, astaxanthin does have uh, shown to have that impact. Now, there's not a study that, I, that we know of that shows in, in humans an, an impact on Parkinson's with, with astaxanthin. 
But there's a lot of evidence that shows it has an impact on these inflammatory uh, markers, inflammatory players, bad actors, if you will. Um, and so that you, you could look at things like that as, as a possible, uh, something that possibly could, could, could help your inflammatory situation. Dr. Wilcox, you've said caffeine, as if I need some, but I did not yawn <laughs> in front of you. I was just thinking about uh, the question at hand, if there were any foods or food compounds. And there was actually an interesting study that we did with, uh, we have a large Parkinson's study here associated with the Kukini Honolulu Heart Program. And um, a few years ago, uh, our group found that uh, coffee drinking was uh, protective against Parkinson's and so there's so if you don't have it it could protect you from it if you have it does it help you in some way that we didn't do that study but there are there's been several studies since that uh, suggest that there could be some Benefit. some help yeah so if you have Parkinson's don't cut the coffee maybe have an extra one all right maybe so Maybe so. I think a lot of this is emerging science that we're learning. And so a lot of the things that we're discovering, we're sort of making these connections and a lot more research probably needs to be done. But you got to start somewhere. All right. We have got Joe on the line from Molokai. Joe, welcome to The Body Show. Happy to hear from my friends on Molokai. Oh, great. Um, Aloha and and thanks for letting me talk. I'm an avid gardener and farmer and I want to grow just the most nutritious vegetables and I'm wondering about the leaves of the vegetables in the cabbage family, like broccoli, cauliflower. You always see the flowers for sale. The, what you see for sale at your produce department is the flowers. But I'm interested in the leaves. Can you give me an idea if, if they're nutritious or not? Because huh, I really like broccoli and cauliflower, but I guess I just like the flowery part. I don't think I've ever eaten the leaves with it. I, I don't know. I, I don't know specifically with broccoli and cauliflower, but I know that the the a lot of the plants that the Okinawans eat, the leaves are, are, are a big part of the diet. So if the leaves and broccoli are helpful, I might just be eating the wrong part. <laughs> Maybe you should eat it all. <laughs> Maybe I should. I'm going to have to put that on the list, and in, would... unless they taste gross, in which case, you know, it's probably not going to happen unless there's cheese or butter on it, and then we're talking about yeah. this negative effect again, okay. And I would add to that uh, the leaves of, for example, taro, okay. beets, et cetera, all have uh, significant uh, nutrients, including zeaxanthin, which is so a major So why don't we cut player. them off? That's what, that, yeah. Is that a cultural thing? Like we've always just not had that? Well, I think in the, in the Hawaiian diet, they, they eat both the taro and the leaves. Huh. Yeah. And in the Okinawan diet, they have uh, the sweet potato leaves are particularly They eat the leaves too? Mm-hmm going to have to start eating some leaves. All right. So it sounds like, you know, Joe, there might be some benefit to the leaves. We'll have to do a little research, see what's in the broccoli leaves and cauliflower leaves, but might be worth keeping the leaves until you find out. Great idea, though. You're going to be a gardener, a farmer, create your own vegetables. What better way to know that they're exactly what you wanted than to be the one to make them? Sounds like a great plan to me. All right. So we've got just about... uh, eight or nine more minutes left in the show. Um, You know, Dr. Wilcox, if I want to stay young, if I want to stay healthy, if I want to really keep myself aging in a good way, what are some simple things that I could do right now today? Is there something else? Is there something simple, easy steps that all of us can take to just make ourselves live longer and be healthy? Why do I think you're going to say exercise? And I know that's going to be part of it. 
But tell me, what can I do? Sorry about that. It's exercise. I knew it. <laughs> I knew well, it. All right. Kind of. You know, in our, our research, uh, I think in the last couple of decades, especially with the Okinawan population and some of the other what we call blue zone populations where uh, they have a lot of where, – where people live uh, exceptionally long and healthy lives – um, there seems to be a number of things they have in common. And diet is one of them. They all tend to eat a very vegetable-heavy diet. They don't eat to excess. You know, even they have, like in Okinawa, they have this expression, harahachibu, eat till you're... 80% eight, eight, full, gotcha, don't overeat. Other Japanese have that expression okay. too. And there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, wisdom to, tho- to those ideas. Um, and, Exercise, diet, yeah. don't overeat, eat a lot of vegetables, Yeah, avoid yeah. processed stuff. I just don't think processed yeah. stuff is all that good for us. Yeah, and, you know, have good support network, positive attitude. Um, and I think, you know, if you supplement, you should supplement wisely with uh, things that are evidence-based, which is one of the reasons that uh, Dave and I initially met because uh, he, he's been interested in cardiovascular disease for many years. I've been interested in diseases of aging like cardiovascular disease, working with the Kukini Hanola Heart Program. And and I've been especially interested over the last few years in what is in food that might be active uh, chemically or even active act on your genes. Right. Food is medicine. Right. And so genes are not just sort of, you know, switches in the body uh, that, that are uh, inactive and you press a button and something happens. They're going on and off all the time depending on what you do. And so when Dave and I met one time and we were looking at uh, astaxanthin as a compound, and uh, he was mainly focused on cardiovascular disease at, at the time, and I was focused on aging and cardiovascular disease as one of the, the – and we got to talking and said, well, maybe we should just do a little literature search and see if your astaxanthin compound has anything to do with aging. So interestingly enough, we found a study um, where – the this was a study of worms, uh, which are uh, they live about six weeks long, and they're very good model organisms for aging, and they share the same genes uh, as us in many cases. I'm a worm. <laughs> well, you have the same Foxo. Well, actually, you have a similar Foxo three gene. Worms have one version of Foxo three. We have uh, Foxo one, uh, two, three, and 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 six. But the Foxo three version is the very powerful one uh, in, in us for aging. And so this group in Korea, they took these worms, they fed them astaxanthin, and they were just, you know, your normal happy-go-lucky worms, and they lived, they weren't diseased or had diabetic or anything, and they lived 20% longer when they're on the astaxanthin. And then they knocked out the FOXO3 gene in the worms, completely abolished the effect. So we knew at that time that astaxanthin was working, in, at least in part, through activating this FOXO3 longevity gene. And that and that gene itself, we've since shown, has major anti-inflammatory effects. It has effects on telomeres. It has multiple, multiple effects, uh, free radicals. So all the, uh, a lot of, or a lot of the major mechanisms of aging, cell, cell metabolism, you know, your, your energy metabolism. This gene affects those pathways, and those are all pathways that are linked to how rapidly you age. So and you it, mentioned that word telomeres. That's yeah. another thing that we could have a whole hour-long discussion yeah. about. So it's really telomeres. It's really fascinating. And maybe, longer they are, longer you live. Dave might have Get something. me more telomeres. I want some of that too. Yeah. Okay. All uh, right. And I'll just add in terms of simple things that we can do is that uh, there's now a, a very strong body of evidence that supports that, that stress itself causes inflammation. Why uh, are you making me so unhappy, David? <laughs> 
It's and, Monday, and, the most stressful and, day of the week, and, and, and you're and, telling me that my stress is causing inflammation. And, and, but we can measure it now. I mean, so oh, great! Yeah, Let's just do that right now. <laughs> yes. And so, if you can think about doing the things that can help in reducing stress, you do reduce inflammation as well. So it could be yoga, it could be tai chi, it could be surfing, it could be tennis, it could be music, it could be going joining a choral society. So something that we do. Speaking of, something that we do that lowers our stress can actually help mitigate some of these other aspects of what we're all worried about. Because there's this whole other theory on, you know, your telomere length and these are little caps on the genes. And if you lose the caps, then the genes don't replicate in the same effective way that they should. So you want to have these little extras, these extra caps. And how do you get more of those? You mentioned meditation. We talked a little bit earlier about that East meets West kind of philosophy, that really what it seems like what we're finding out is that the more we know about aging and life and longevity, the more we just get back to the basics. And when you talk about, Brad, talking to the 80-some-year-old person in Okinawa, what did they eat when they were younger? Sweet potatoes. What are they still doing? Being active, being physical, working, that group support sense, that community sense. When people from Okinawa come here, do they still have the same genetic protection? You're doing that study now. Well, there's some – we don't have the – It's not done the yet. The full it's answers. Still, yeah, we have sure. a study in process where, where we're looking at uh, from the Kukini Honolulu Heart Program, the Okinawans versus ja- other Japanese, and finding there, uh, despite more risk factors, the biochemical markers like insulin and uh, cholesterol levels and – uh, blood sugar levels are better in Okinawans. So we're trying to investigate that further to see if there's uh, there's anything going on from a genetic standpoint. Uh, but we, you know, so far we think that in, in general the, the lifestyle factors uh, as, a, as a group appear to, to count for more than, more than genetics. I mean, you can be born with uh, awesome genetics and, and, uh, and you could live to be 90 and do all the wrong things. Or, and then everybody says, well, look, it was all genes. Well, that person probably would have lived to be 110 if they had done the right thing. So it's a combination of, of sure. things. And when, I, when you think about what's going on in terms of uh, health and healthy aging, there, to, and one of the callers talked about individualization. Certainly you've got to find what works, what works for you. But the, I think the best thing is to read a lot, look at the evidence, look to see if whatever you're taking and doing has any clinical trial evidence behind it, and, and make your own decisions and discussion, you know, in discussion with your physician. All right. Boy, I've learned a lot. I want to thank both of you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then. Thank mm-hmm. you.